worship, we almost had that lineup of songs after the sermon today because those match so well with what we see in Ephesians 5 this morning. So I would encourage you after the sermon is done, go find our playlist, listen to these same songs, every single one of them, you'll see even more truth as you just see the word of God. Well, take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. We're in a series called Worth Fighting For. This is a relationship series through the book of Ephesians, and we started out chapter 5, verse 1, with a very simple truth. Walk in love. Walk in love. The Ephesians 5, 1 says, be an imitator of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ has loved you and gave himself up for you, a fragrant offering and sacrifice. What an example we have in Jesus Christ. And last week we saw in this series, the way we walk in love primarily is we walk in the light. We walk in the light. Um, that, is, that is what we saw specifically with our relationships with the lost people, that we should be walking in the light. And yeah, let me get my clicker out. Here we go. Look at this. I have a clicker now and I love it. Um, I can use it. Yes, thank you, Dan. Dan's got my back still, uh, but we're going to see how this goes, so bear with me this morning. But yeah, Ephesians 5, 7 through 14, this is, this is with, with other people who don't know Jesus Christ. What are we supposed to do? We're not supposed to necessarily call out every single bad thing they're doing. No. Verses 12 and 13 of this chapter explicitly make it clear, you speak Jesus. You let them know who Jesus Christ is. That's how you're shining that light, and that will naturally expose the darkness. That's just, it's going to be a natural byproduct of that. Well, today we're picking up right where we left off, and the message today is to the church. This letter is written to the church, and these are going to be our relationships in the church. Walking in wisdom is at its core what we're talking about. So this is, you could just as easily say, um, not just friendships at the church, but all of your friendships. What kind of friends do you have? Who are your friends? You have to answer the question, do I have friends at church? Or do I just have acquaintances at church? Are your friends more, your friends are more than acquaintances. And friendship is something that can get so easily overlooked, I've heard it said before that if you show me your friends, I will show you your future. Our friendships affect every aspect of our lives. And we can't just think that showing up on Sunday morning, worshiping Christ, and then calling it a week is going to be enough. No, we have to have the right kind of friendships. You have to surround yourself with the right kind of people who are also pursuing Jesus. And I want to say, as we dive into this passage in Ephesians 5, the primary main point of this whole passage is not actually just talking about friendships. I want to be very clear about that up front. We're in a topical series on relationships. The two main points of the text are foundational to every aspect of your Christian life. Right now, what we're doing in this sermon is we're going to make the primary thrust of the application about your friendships because this does matter. These do matter in our relationships. But you are going to see that we have to value the intentional making of friends with one another. We have to do this. And I know some of you are out there are thinking, all right, great. I got this one. I'm in life group. I love my life group buddies. 
Uh, I was with my ladies last night. We just went and got sushi. I'm all in on this, and I have no problem with this. Well, there's still going to be a lot here for you. I want to say that, so don't relax yet. Um, but then there's a lot of us in here at the same time are thinking, wow, friendships, David? Friendships in the church? Do you realize how hard that is to do? I don't have enough time to invest in other people. I'm just trying to survive out here. I just need a few people who think like me, who act like me, and I'm good. Well, I would say not so fast, not so fast. Let's not think that we only need people in our lives that talk like us and dress like us. I mean, that's pretty much what middle school girls who all part their hair the same way say, right? Let's get a little bit more mature than that. We need people in our lives who, who can speak into things that we're dealing with. We need people in our lives who can come alongside us, put their arm around us, and ask us thought-provoking questions, help us, older people than us. We even need people who are younger than us that we can actually walk alongside and teach and help and support. That's what we have in the church. And if you're not going to have those relationships in the church, where else are you going to find those kind of relationships? We need Jesus' people. It's, it's more important than just the fact that I'm busy. And I also know at the same time, many of us in here are probably thinking, well, David, I have tried this. I've stuck my neck out there before. I've, I've, I've sent text messages. I've invited people over to my home. And, and it's just so hard to make friends, right? A lot of us have been in that, in that place. And you think, what is it? Is, are people just that selfish? I'm like, am I just not cool anymore? And here I am saying the word cool, and it's not cool to say the word cool anymore, and you, you get in your own head. You see how that works, and you get discouraged and down. That's a very real thing that a lot of us are thinking about when we talk about friendships, because the older you get, the harder it is to make friends. But we have to realize, if we're going to walk in wisdom, one of the things that we have to do, that means that we have to make friends in church. Deep, solid, life-giving, soul-stirring friendships is what we need in our lives. So today, we're going to see that. Relationships in the church are worth fighting for because God created us in his image as a relational being. We're hardwired for relationships, and the one person who holds it all together is Jesus Christ. Relationships that we have that are centered on Jesus Christ are going to go a whole lot deeper than the Facebook, you know, disc golf community group. It's going to be a whole lot stronger and lasting and more sure than the game that I play, that community that I have in that, or my card, but card game buddies. We're talking about Jesus Christ who holds all things together. Those are the kind of relationships that we need to have with our friendships. So today we will see two foundational elements to make friends. How do we make these kind of friends? How do they last? And let's go to the text because these two big foundational points impact all of life and especially this aspect of our friendship. So look at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. All right, I'm going to stop right there. We'll, we'll jump back in that verse in a minute. But the first point today is understand the will of the Lord. Understand the will of the Lord. 
Make friends who help you remember what you already know to be true. The will of God has been a very reoccurring theme in our church lately. Uh, we didn't plan any of this. I don't know if you've noticed this. We just had a podcast to come out this week, the Doxa Dialogue, where Ben and Amanda and I talked for 40 minutes about the will of God. We analyzed it from all these different angles. It was really solid, and if you haven't listened to that yet, I would encourage you to find that, that podcast and listen to that. We have a ladies' Bible study, The Cove. Um, I know there's ladies that meet on Wednesday, and I think there's even some other ladies that meet at another time. Um, it's, it's discerning the voice of the Lord by Priscilla Shear. So we're getting a heavy dose of God's will right now, and I, I know this is for a lot of us. We, we need to hear this. Right on the heels of the scripture telling us to keep an eye on the clock. The days are evil. Shine that light. The very next thing is, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, I would have to say, like, this sounds pretty obvious. Um, You know, walking in wisdom means that we need to find the will of God. Okay, great. That's really deep. But at the same time, that sentence is seemingly a lot easier said than done. It really is. A lot of times we hear this phrase, the will of God, and it can be intimidating. Um, How many of you have ever wondered, oh man, am I in the will of God? Did I somehow make a wrong choice years back and now I'm on this like second tier track and and, and nothing is the way it should be and I'm not living the fullness of my life because I just messed up that one time and I'm I'm off the track. I I I can't get back on the track. I've thought that before. I know, I know probably many of us in this room have. So how do you find the will of God? Well, in the book of Ephesians, all the way back in chapter 1, we were here a while back, but verse 7 through 10 give us the first hint about how we can find the will of God. Verse 7 in chapter 1 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The will of God is revealed first and foremost in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to this earth to save sinners, to give you hope to give you a life worth living for. That is the will of God to unite all things in himself. And there's so much to say here, but I want to just cut to the chase because we don't find God's will in some really weird cloud formation. We don't find God's will by like, oh, there's a word that popped out of my alphabet cereal. Like, oh, this great crazy circumstance must be the will of God. No, we find God's will from the word of God. The will of God is the word of God. We can't overcomplicate that. God tells us what he wants. He tells us who he is. He tells us about his character. He tells us what he wants us to do in the word of God. It's to make him known. It's to show his glory, his justice, his mercy, to be an imitator of God like we just saw in Ephesians 5.1. That's what we're called to do. God's will is for you to show his glory to this world. That's what's revealed in the word of God. There's a pastor in California who I have received a lot of great information from over the years. Um, and this is, this is basically a whole sermon. 
Uh, you could probably preach a sermon on, well, you, not probably, you definitely could preach a sermon on every single one of these points. But when you break it down, these are the six specific things that we see from God's word that it's our will. It's, it's his will for your life. It's to be saved. It's to be spirit-filled. It's to be sanctified, to be submissive, to suffer, and to give thanks. Now, all of these we're going to see as we go along in this sermon today, so I'm not going to spend too much time right now on these, but this is what God's word reveals, that he wants for you and I. And now you're thinking, well, David, this still isn't helping me figure out what kind of car to buy. This still isn't helping me figure out who to marry. Come on, David, I need a little bit more from God's word. Can't he reveal a little bit more to me? Well, beyond these core foundational truths, there is a lot of freedom. We have to realize we're not robots. We're created in the image of God as a free moral agent. We have freedom to make choices to use our God-given gifts in our desires, right? John Piper actually gives us another list about discerning God's will. And this is, this is like more of a, a pathway to find God's will. So these are like more specific questions you can ask as you're trying to discern and understand the will of God. Pursue God. That should be at the front and center, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. All right, so I'm pursuing God. Another question to ask is run to need. That's always the place that a person who wants to live like Jesus Christ should posture themselves as running towards the needs. Don't forget what you love. What passions has God given you? That, that should help. Be quick to listen. Fall to your knees, like spend time in prayer about this, and then consider your holy desires. Again, it goes to what is your God-given natural instinct? Do you have this desire to help the poor? Do you have a desire to, to help special needs children? Like God gives all of us special areas where we have compassion and we have gifts and ability. Those are the guidelines that you can follow to find God's will. And all of these are rooted in the character of God. He is telling us clearly what he wants from us, and then we literally follow that. But you see here how you don't have to stress about what kind of car to buy. You don't have to stress about where to go to school. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You walk in love. You walk in the light. You walk in wisdom shine light. That's not advanced trigonometry. That's simple. That's what the Bible teaches. This is stuff that most of us already know to be true. We already understand that, but the Bible is still giving us this reminder. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Last week, we talked about this exact same point. So often in our Christian life, it's not just it's not just about like, I don't know what to do. What should I do? Much of the Christian life is remembering what you already know to be true. And that's why the Bible emphasizes it so many times. If we're honest, and we would all agree that, you know what, these, these things aren't that complicated, but it is actually hard to do some of this stuff when we're surrounded by the wrong crowd. If you don't have the right friends that are helping you, that are pushing you forward this way, 
it's really easy to give, get off track. That's the challenging part. So we need to take it from God's word. Listen to him, pray, follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, and surround yourself with the right kind of friends. That's the first way that you walk in wisdom. Here's the second way. The, the, the second point today is be filled with the Spirit. Make friends that can help you consume the word, enough of the word to be carried. That is what we're going to see here as we continue with verse 18. Let's uh, pick it right back up with verse 18 where I left off before. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And you're probably thinking, wow, David, you're getting really original with these points today, right? Like, <laughs> understand the will of the Lord, be filled with the Spirit. I lifted this straight from the page, right? I did do a little work, though, with this, with this whole concept of friendship, right? You can see that we are to make friends who help us consume enough of the word of God to be carried. And really, these first two points, you could say, um, have great synergy. They really, really have like symmetry where they have perks that are just feeding off the other perk, all right? Don't be foolish. Understand the will of the Lord. Don't get drunk. Be filled with the Spirit. You could even mix and match those if you want. Like, don't be foolish. Don't get drunk. Don't be foolish. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk. Understand the will of the Lord. I mean, it all, it all connects. But what we have here in this passage is a very great illustration of how to be filled with the Spirit. Alcohol is a very powerful substance. And, you know, many American, modern American housewives understand their wine. They know what wine is, what it does. The Ephesians most definitely knew what wine would do. Um, and I think it's important to point out here, 1 Corinthians 6.12 says that all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of anything. There's a biblical principle here that says, look, you shouldn't put any substance in your body. I mean, we're not talking about medicine right now, but you don't put any recreational substance in your body that makes you lose control. If you lose your self-control and your ability to think and process, you, you shouldn't be putting that in your body. You shouldn't let other things control you. Nothing besides something that's way better than alcohol, right? The filling of the Holy Spirit. So the Ephesians, um, they were heavy drinkers. I don't know if you knew this. Um, they were very, very, very heavy drinkers. Um, they knew what intoxication would do. I mean, we understand that. Even our own society, we have a phrase, law enforcement has a phrase for being intoxicated. It's being called, called being under the influence, right? Well, the Ephesians, they would drink so hard, um, specifically in their religious ceremonies, like in their temple, all right? They thought the harder they drank, the more they got drunk, they would um, put off the the, uh, the, the temporal, the here and now, the things that they could touch and feel, and they believed that they could actually tap into um, a relationship with the divinities, with those divine Greek gods. And they would actually drink and drink and drink, and they had a specific place in their temples where they could puke. They had puking stations, and they would drink and drink more. And the more they drunk, 
the more they could be in tune with the deities. Now, we know I mean, when you look at the historical records of what was going on there, and you put two and two together with, um, with what we know to be true about demons, what they were actually doing is they were in this dark, occultic connection with demonic powers. That's what was happening. And you even saw that when we had the, uh, the Ephesians series intro all the way back in our Beloved Identity series. Remember I talked about a lot of these Christians in the church at Ephesus burned all of their magic books? They had a lot of occult, dark magic books. They weren't just dabbling in it. They were head on in it. Um, and when they came to Christ, they burned all that stuff. But the Ephesians would get into demonic trances. And as a matter of fact, that's not only were they doing that in the... Uh, the temple to Diana as they worship Dionysius. But in Acts 1 at Pentecost, when um, the apostles were preaching and people were hearing in their own tongue the apostles preaching, do you remember what the Jews said at the time? Like, oh, you're just these pagan Gentiles. You're drunk. And Peter was like, no, I'm not drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. But as what they were referring to was the same hedonistic pagan culture that they saw with the people at Ephesus. Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in his most recent book, Talking to Strangers. I don't know if you all know Malcolm Gladwell. He's written a lot of great books. Uh, He's got a podcast. And he was specifically talking about why there's so many cases of rape on college campuses. And going deeper than just the fact that, hey, alcohol changes the way you think. You lose self-control. When you really boil it down, what is exactly going on there? What what does the effect? the influence of alcohol do to the human mind is what it's doing is it, you know, part of this is basic, we already know in a general sense, but it removes all of the things that are in the background, all of your fears and doubts, the things that you're struggling with. It can push those aside and it elevates and highlights and enhances what's exactly in front of you. So if you're at a sporting event and you're in this frenzy of the crowd, you don't worry about all these other things and you're just even more amplified to what's going on in the field. Same thing with a loud party. But if you're at like a college party scene and everything else is pushed away, you've lost your self-control and some of the restraint you would normally have and the one thing that you desire and the one thing that you want is enhanced and brought right up in front of you, and that's all you can think about or see, that's why you have some of those cases going on on college campuses. I'm saying all this to let you know this lines up with being filled with the Spirit because when we are focused on God and His truth and His Word, That's the one thing that's enhanced. That's the one thing that comes up. And the other doubts and fears that we don't get and that we don't understand, those are pushed off in the background. When we're filled with the Spirit, we can focus on the truth that we need to focus on. Don't get drunk with wine. Rather, be filled with something a million times better. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And do you realize that if verse 18 was not in the book of Ephesians... Everything else that we read in the entire book of Ephesians would almost be impossible to do. It really would. It would be this legalistic attempt to try to achieve good things if we didn't have verse 18 right here, being filled with the Spirit. We would still be the great vehicle that chapters 1 through 3 describe. You know, our beloved identity, this is who you are in Christ. Uh, We would still have the roadmap to do what we need to do, how to walk in chapters 4 through 6. But if you don't have the Holy Spirit filling you and empowering you, you don't have fuel in the engine to drive to where you need to go. 
we have to understand this. We are never commanded to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We never are. We're never, we're never commanded to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. That promise is already there. We see that in Ephesians 1.13. Ephesians 1, if you want to just turn back and look at that with me. Uh, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So being baptized in the Holy Spirit, being indwelt, being sealed, none of those things are commanded. They're not a command. The one thing that is a command is this one right here, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So what is the difference? So we're going to have to get in the Greek a little bit, I think, to understand the difference uh, because the difference isn't right in front of us. In, in a very literal sense, um, getting into the grammar, this is a passive and this is also a present, okay? Now, I didn't really do well in English and in any language in high school, in school when I, was, when I was growing up. I just didn't care enough to really care about it. But then when I got to college and I had to start learning Greek, I had to really actually start focusing on it because it mattered and I wanted to pass classes and not waste thousands of dollars. So if you are a language enthusiast, I wasn't one until like a few years ago. But could you just put your nerd hat on with me for a second here and we're going to talk about what this Greek word actually means. The Greek word is polero. It is a present tense, be, it's a passive. Someone else is doing the action for you. So it literally means be being filled. And it's a continual thing. This isn't just a zap, one moment you got it. It's not like, all right, great, I'm really committing to God. I feel convicted. I'm dedicating my life right now to God, and I'm making this decision once and for all. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about being filled with the Spirit. It's a constant, ongoing thing that happens to you. And the word polero, not only does it mean continuously being filled, but it actually, in the original, has this idea of wind blowing the sail of a ship. So it's moving you forward. We saw that in the, one of the songs that we sang this morning. But a wind inside your sail being the thrust of the energy, that's the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you don't move in your own energy, your own flesh, your own ideas. We don't generate our own will. You are blown along by the word of God, the wind of the Spirit that carries us along. It's the same thing that we see in 2 Peter chapter 1. And I got that verse up here for you. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the way we got the Bible. That's the same way that we are to be filled. We should be carried along by the Holy Spirit. When, I, when my family was in Pigeon Forge, like at the beginning of this year, we went on a hike in Gatlinburg. And there's something about like just getting in nature, walking alongside a creek, you know, this rushing water, right? It's so relaxing, so peaceful. And something about that just makes you want to, like, throw a stick or throw a rock in, in, in the water sometimes. And when we, my boys were with me, and we all took sticks, and we just threw them in the water, and then you just saw the current, rushing current, take those sticks. And it's just like, oh, yeah, look at that go. It's relaxing. It's amazing. That's what being filled with the Spirit looks like. It's like you're that stick in the water that's getting carried along by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's what being filled means, but the question still remains. 
How can you be filled to the point that you're carried along by the Holy Spirit? That's the question that we still haven't answered. And that question, honestly, is hard to answer with just this one phrase that we have right here in the text right now, in this immediate context. How can you be filled to the point that you are carried along by the Holy Spirit? Well, to answer that question, I think you've got to do what you always should do in the Bible when you don't understand something. You let Scripture interpret Scripture. So if you come to a passage and it's just like, wow, that looks great, but I need more. Don't go to someone else's opinion. Don't go to another book. First of all, go to what does the Bible say about this? And as a matter of fact, we can get some great help with this when we go to other portions of Scripture. The same time Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, he wrote the book of Colossians. He wrote this letter to the church at Colossae, and many of the exact same themes that he talks about and discusses in Ephesians, he's saying the same things to the other church. And theologians even call it a parallel passage. This is what Colossians 3.16 says about this same exact concept. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So do you see the correlation there between being filled with the Spirit? Do you see what matches being filled with the Spirit in this other parallel passage? It's letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So how are we filled? We maximize our exposure with Jesus Christ in his word. Going back to that original illustration with being filled with the spirit, not drunk with the wine, right? We need to consume enough of God's word to where he masters and controls us. To be filled with God's word is to let the word of God so richly indwell you that you don't care about all the other things going on in the back of your mind. You know, when you're drinking in a bar and the one thing that's in front of you is how um, lonely and depressed you are and you're sad and you're in this dingy bar, that's the one thing that's enhanced. That's a very dangerous place to be. You forget when you're drinking alcohol all the other things for a temporary season until, until that high is gone and then it hits you in the face again and you go, have to go back to the bottle. It's this vicious cycle of being drunk with wine. Being drunk on the Holy Spirit, being filled with him where you're consuming God's word and saying, hey, this is truth. This is who God is. Look how good he is. This is who he has called me to be. What an amazing gift that is. When we're consuming that, when we're feeding on that, we are going to be able to push away all of the doubts and the fears and the unknowns, and we're going to hold on to the truth that we need. So I know we like to consume things. We like to consume dark chocolate. We like to consume tacos and wings. If you like to feast on stuff, feast on God's word. That's what this is saying. It will change your heart. It will change your outlook. It will change your worldview. It changes the way you think and feel. Just like darkness in a negative sense, drunkenness in a negative sense, will be, this will be the opposite in a positive sense. Consuming God's word leads to Christ's likeness. And it will fade out to black all of the things that you don't need to be thinking about. When we're making God's word our priority, and it's, and it's something that we run to and we feast on, that's when we can see the truth that really matters. That's when we can see who we really are. We need friends that help us with that. 
We need friends that can remind us of that. We need friends that can help point us in that direction. Walking in love, walking in the light, and walking in wisdom. Now, verses 19 through 21, the the last three verses here, you could say this is a new section of Scripture, but really, these three verses fall directly under the heading of walking in the Spirit. These are the three ways that you can be filled with the Spirit, and then the, the three things that you will start to do, three specific responses. So don't miss the fact that it's falling under the heading of being filled with the Spirit. And these are also marks of spirit-filled friendships. Same thing. Sing truth with one another. Give thanks always and for everything. And then submitting to one another. Notice if, if you don't gather on Sunday morning with the church body, you're going to have a really, really hard time doing this first one. Right? How do you address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs if you don't show up on Sunday morning, can you do that? The answer is you can't, okay? <laughs> you, can't, you can't follow that one at all if you're not here on Sunday morning to sing with one another. And, and singing unifies us, right? It really does. I mean, I was, as I was singing this morning to God with all of you, there was a special bond that happened that you don't get anywhere else. I love that. Um, I also love in verse 19, look what it says there at the end. How are we supposed to sing? Singing, making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Oh, excuse me. Making melody to the Lord, I gave away the punchline, with your heart. All right? So Julie's a classical musician. She has a great ear for music. I don't. All right? I like music that Julie does not like. As a matter of fact, sometimes when I'm singing songs, I'll sing my crazy song, and she's just like, David, please stop. It's what she's saying is like, bless your heart, but your voice is horrible. All right? You like that phrase, bless your heart, right? We love that phrase in the South. It's a biblical phrase. You can see it right here. Sing with your heart. <laughs> All right. The point is not that, like, hey, it doesn't matter how you sound. Up here on the stage and we're leading the congregation, that probably does matter. Bless your heart. Not everybody's going to probably be up here. But the main point is it doesn't matter how you sound to God. It matters what your heart is singing to God. Are you lifting up and making a joyful noise to him? That's what he cares about. That's what he wants to see. Again, singing on Sunday is super important, but you know, you don't have to just sing on Sunday either. I mean, we've never had more technology at our fingertips to where we can find amazing worship music of any kind of genre. It's all over. You're probably not going to find it all on the radio, but you can find it out there, right? There's a lot of good worship songs out there. And you can sing to the Lord as you're filled and fill yourself with the spirit of who he is and the truth of who he is on a daily basis. Verse 20 uh, is starting to get a little bit harder. I mean, everybody loves the singing part. Yeah, that's easy. All right, great. I can sing with one another. I can sing some, I can listen to music. That's great. That'll fill me with the spirit. Verse 20, though, giving thanks always and for everything, that is definitely not as easy. Um, but this is another movement of being filled with the Spirit. You know, there's always going to be something to grumble and complain about. In this present life, there is always negatives. You always will have that. And if you choose to look at it, you can always be depressed, okay? As an adult, there's al- it's always an option. But being filled with the Spirit says, you know what? God gave me this for a reason. 
this is where, as we're meditating on the word of God, and you think about Genesis 50, verse 20, where Joseph, who was basically given over for dead, his brothers tried to kill him, and then he forgave his brothers. And you remember what he said there at the end of that story? He said, what you meant was for evil, but God meant it for good, to save many people. God used the evil, and he turned it into something that was an amazing rescue, a salvation for his people. I mean, we see this in Romans 8, 28, right? God is working all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I mean, we see it in James chapter 1. Count it a blessing when you face trials of various kinds. Why? Because it will mature you. It's something that God uses to build you up, to bring you closer to him. In 2 Corinthians, we talk about that one all the time. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul wanted to die. He was ready. He was like depressed. He was ready to give up. But he said, this is making me rely more on God who gives strength. And that's where I need to be. I need to have a place where I'm relying more on my, my, my father. God will never waste a trial in your life. He doesn't do that. And he's always there. He's always got your back. He's present. He knows what it's, what's going on. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't cry sometimes. This doesn't mean that we don't get upset sometimes and that we're, we don't get frustrated at times. I'm not trying to tell you to fake it and pretend that everything's wonderful all the time and always be happy. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, look, when you are facing a trial, you can actually be thankful for that when you focus on what God's trying to teach you. What is God using in that trial? We need trials to help us remember who he is. Verse 21, this isn't an easy one either. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, a lot of people, the, the popular thing nowadays is to take verse 21 and just to package it together with verse 22 and the whole marriage relationship between husbands and wives. And, uh, I mean, you can, look at the, you can look at the text yourself there, um, is ver the question is verse 21 connected to verse 22 or is it connected to verse 20? And I know that there's a comma there after verse 20. There's a period after verse 21. There's a new paragraph in verse 22. I also know that, um, you know, punctuation isn't inspired. It's not. We're going to talk about this when we talk about husbands and wives. We're going to spend a lot of time on this. But here's the truth. You can't, you can't make the grammatical text say something that it's not saying. Those are two different thought units, all right? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is talking about our relationships with one another. This is being filled with the Spirit. This is in this thought unit. And the husbands and wives is a different section. Now, this doesn't mean that this passage in verse 21 doesn't still relate to and connect with marriage. Of course it does. These are connected. But this isn't a gender thing at all. Not at all. This is not a male versus female point. This is all of us submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Men and women are equal, and men and women aren't in the text, so let's not put them in verse 21. It's submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's super important distinction to make. We're talking about three ways that we respond in all of our relationships. So Christian friends are to mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, we're talking about something that, that makes people's ears perk up, right? 
when you just throw out the word submission. And honestly, it's probably because the word submission has a very, very negative context in our culture. If you think about why submission is such a dirty word, why is that such a word that everybody's against and doesn't want to like, why is that? Because when you look at the Bible, submission is always a positive thing. It's never a negative thing. Submission is, a, is something that Jesus Christ, who was equal with his father, he did when he came to earth. And when Jesus was here on earth on his rescue mission for us, Jesus submitted to the will of the father. Jesus and God the father are equal in every way. But Jesus submitted to the father. Submission is a beautiful thing, but we get this this. this this negative connotation of it, probably because we've seen so many people with authority abuse it. When people with authority abuse their authority, it puts a bad taste in our mouth to submission. I mean, one of the most awful things you could ever see is an unloving husband say to his wife, submit, woman. Like, that's awful. That's horrible. And we hear that kind of stuff, and we're like, oh, gross, yuck. I'm with you, right? But our example of Jesus Christ says, I'm laying it all down for you. I am sacrificing for you. I am, I am putting my own comforts on the side, and I am uplifting you, and I'm going after helping your needs. Who wouldn't want to submit to a Savior like that, right? Submission in the Bible is always a beautiful thing. It's, it's something that God has set in place. If we didn't have people submitting to authorities with their government, in the home, in the church, what would happen? People would get trampled over. People would also um, run amok. There would be all kinds of, everybody would fight for their own way. Having biblical submission doesn't hurt you. It promotes stability and order. We have to understand that concept and not just let the dark world who has the false view of this word shape the way we think about submission. And the point is we should be submitting to one another. We really should. There's different ways, different, different functions that we all have. I'm submitting to people in my life, and I'm a pastor, and I'm a, and I'm a husband, and I'm a father. I still submit all the time. We should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. God is the one who establishes authority. And yeah, the lost take great pride in their individualism and their independence, but if you go too far with any good thing, especially those two, what is it going to lead to? It leads to selfishness. It leads to, I'm, I'm looking out for me and I'm holding on to my thing. As a church, believers filled with the Spirit should be in submission to one another, and that's a way that we set aside our agendas and we can accomplish so much more because we're uplifting each other and we're helping the other person do their thing. That's what we see in Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what we have seen from the very beginning from our Savior Jesus. The highlight of that, the peak of that was Jesus on the cross submitting to the will of the Father to save you and me. And in the context of personal relationships, it is definitely not a male versus female thing. So let's just put that to rest once and for all. Remember that when we come back to this passage in our, in our marriage sermon, in the relationships with our marriage. Submission in the church, in the home, in the government, they all look different, but none of that changes the fact that we are to submit to one another. And Jesus showed us the beauty of submission. Jesus is someone that I want to submit to. 
And when we are letting the truth of who God is dwell in us richly, when we are consuming the goodness of God, we're going to be ready and willing to submit to his plan for us, and we're going to be ready and willing to submit to each other. So the question remains, who are you running with? Are you running with the people who say, no, submission is a bad thing. You do you. You be you. Go your way. Or are you running with the kind of Christian friends who are also pursuing Jesus Christ, who are pointing you to what Jesus did for you and what he has called you to be? Are you making friends that will help you consume the truth of the word of God? You could say, whose influence are you under? We have to have deep, life-giving friendships with Jesus' people. That's how we accomplish what God has called us to do. Walking in wisdom means you have Jesus' friends. Walking wisdom means that you have relationships that promote the will of God and that stir the word of God to dwell in you richly. You need friendships that point you to the source of strength, and that's Jesus Christ. 